The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Okay, one of my favourite parts of The Last Word each year is picking out our sports book of the year and we're delighted that two of our main sports contributors are with us today. Gavin Cooney, sports writer with the 42.ie and Michael Foley, sports writer with the Ireland edition of the Sunday Times but also the author of The Children of Croke Park. Now, Michael, you're mining the Croke Park disaster of a century ago very well. So tell us about The Children of Croke Park and why you've gone for this particular angle. That's a, that's a very cynical <laughs> no, in uh, fairness to you, you actually have done brilliant work on it in making sure that it is remembered yeah. as it should be remembered. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like the Children of Crow Park is basically, it's it's a book aimed at 9 to 12 year olds. It's focused on the three children who died at Crow Park that day. So Tell us about them, what age is Yeah, Jerome O'Leary was 10 years of age. Uh, he was from Dublin. Uh, William Robinson was 11. Uh, he was the first victim on the day. Jerome was the second uh, William was sitting in a tree outside, just outside Croke Park when the firing started, so he was the first one shot. Jerome was sitting on a little wall that used to run along the back of the canal goal, and he was the second one. And then the third victim, uh, John William Scott, who lived actually across the road from Croke Park. Literally, if you stood outside his door and kicked a ball, it would hit Croke Park uh, and Fitzroy Avenue. So it was something that was always in my mind, even way, way back when I started kind of looking into Bloody Sunday, what now, 12 years ago or more, um, that the idea of trying to tell stories like this in a storyful way that children could actually access. And it, it was always in the back of my head, to, to would it be possible to do this this, this subject for children? Yeah. Um, and around the time of lockdown with the centenary in 2020, I did a few um, Zoom calls with classrooms and, 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 and it was amazing when the, when the screen had come on and you'd see all the projects and stuff that they'd done on the victims and on the event itself posted up on the walls and all this. And it was one of the most, it was one of the most amazing things around that particular time for me was to see that the children had been engaged by the story so from that I kind of thought well let's give it a rattle anyway you know <laughs> see how we get on so started in 2021 came out there earlier on the year so it's knocking about now at the moment well congratulations on it. well done thanks, on that thanks very much um, let's go through the books I'm going to actually start with one of the few non-Irish books on the list mm. And Gavin, it's one of your choices and it's one of my favourite books of the year as well. Alan Shipnock's Live and Let Die. Just for though, he was with us to talk about it a couple of months ago, but just explain the story behind this. Yeah, so this, I mean, uh, the the split and rupture in professional golf over the last few years continues to dominate. We, we, we're reading stories today that John Ram looks like he's going to take something like $600 million to go and play on the Saudi-backed Live Tour. It's this extraordinary story and Alan Shipnock has done the best kind of most comprehensive story or book should I say telling the entire story of it and it reads you know it reads absolutely brilliantly so it reads like a thriller at times and and but, very, but also really interesting on the whole geopolitical thing about the Saudis and trying to use their influence with money for oh, reputation yeah. washing it's much more than just a golf book oh oh yeah absolutely well it's first of all it's it's very gossipy it's it reminds you that professional golf is becoming a bit like the Kardashians like it's so happy <laughs> it's so absurd like it's all just a camp reality TV show drama um, I'd love to be able to quote some of the quotes that are in the book about golfers but actually it's too sweary for radio uh, which uh, well, might help sell the book to be honest <laughs> um, but it, it, like it is a great piece of reporting in a sense there's a chapter in there right at the start about the Saudis uh, well sorry it goes into the political uh, relationship yes. between the United States and Saudi Arabia and then explains why they want to get into sport and that's very enlightening and very well reported and it's not like it's not just relevant to golf it's relevant to football it's relevant to almost everything so I thought that element of the reporting was great but you know you also realise that 
God, like this is a very bitchy and vengeful world. But he really puts the boot into Phil Mickelson again, which oh. is very, very entertaining stuff. But just as an aside on that, Michael, I mean, John Ram. Okay, he has 600 million reasons maybe to do it. But, you know, this is a guy who's still in the prime of his career. Like Cameron Smith went to it. John Ram, though, was part of the European Ryder Cup team. And we've been in this situation where they're supposedly talking about merging. So why is he heading off to take the money? Unless he thinks, take the money, get the deal, and then they merge again. And he's really laughing his head off at it. That's, that's what I would imagine is it. I mean, I think if you look at how Rory McIlroy took the stance... And, you know, obviously gained ahead of a lot of kudos for it, and rightly so, I think. But equally, he's looking back now and wondering, well, did I just get, you know, did I screw myself out of an enormous amount of money? And I don't think we can underestimate the importance of money, even to multi-millionaire golfers. Yeah. They are really driven by money. Uh, so More than winning major titles. Well, I, I suppose they can still contest, can't they, the major titles? That's this the thing, thing with Ram. Yeah. Because he won the Masters this year, he's got a lifetime exemption to that. He's got a few years exemption to the rest of the majors. He's a made man, you know, and now he's, as you say, he's got 600 million reasons to go back on his initial word. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, the thing is, I think at the, at the top of this whole story, you kind of always got the sense that, well, it's like any conflict, you have to come to a resolution at some point. And with the amount of money that was washing about in this, you could probably kind of say, well, they're going to, they're going, they're going to unify at some stage. So as you said at the top there, maybe Ram is just saying, look, I'm going to cash in here and get the money. I'm yeah. still, I, like Gavin says, he'll still have access to all the majors. There's nothing really reputational, uh, you know, this stuff kind of, you know, it washes itself out, literally washes itself out, story moves on, Ram will still be at the majors. Yeah, you know. but on the on the merger and the fact that it was always trending that way, no one was expecting it to happen this summer, including no. the author of this book, Alan yeah. Shipnuck. Yeah. If you remember, he <laughs> posted right. on Twitter, uh, I finally finished this book, you know, um, blood, sweat and tears into this book, sent it off to the publishers. Less than 24 hours later, announcement comes, happy Christmas everybody, the war is over, we're going to merge, at which point you felt terribly sorry for Alan Shipnuck, but he did, you know, he got another chapter in the book, and the story's not over, like, will the merger happen, will it not? The the fact that John Ram is now going to live, uh, and they had set this deadline of the 31st of December to heal all these wounds, uh, the fact that he's going to move over would suggest that absolutely not. Okay, let's go to other books. And the Unpost Irish Book Sports Book of the Year uh, was a really worthy winner, I think. You've both read it, and we had her as a guest here on the programme as well during the year, and our story is fascinating. The Grass Ceiling by Emer Ryan. Gavin. Yeah, I, I love this book. It's part of a trend now and it's great for the ego of myself and Michael to see that there's such great writers now doing books and sports in Ireland. We had Ty Coakley last year. Emer is one of our best fiction writers, yeah. um, certainly of her generation. And this is great. This is a memoir. It's a great title, first of all, The Grass it's Ceiling. brilliant. Uh, and it's a memoir about, you know, it is a memoir really, but obviously it's told through sport. Now, sometimes when you pick up these kind of GA-centric books, is this just going to be another love letter to the GA telling us how great it is? It's not that at all. People not into sport will get a lot out of it. People will relate to a lot of the things that Emer talks about that are largely articulated through sport. But it's also critical of the GA itself because everyone, particularly from like smaller rural parishes, will understand this idea that your identity is wrapped up in the GA. That's how a lot of people perceive you and judge you. But then, and that's true with this, but the, the added dimension to Emer's book is, well, what if the GA doesn't include you? And that, that's what Emer kind of discovered as she yeah. grew up and moved from playing hurling to camogie. It's interesting, like, you know, 
it's these aspects that, you know, you could say are traditionally specific to women's sport that, that, that she explores. Like even the smallest details, like for example, you know, how do you, how you get fake tan out of white collars? Yeah. You know, the conversations around a teammate who's pregnant. But she doesn't just come out and say, I, I, I'm, I'm expecting. She, there, there is a process that everybody recognises, you know. Even stuff like getting bruises when you're playing camogie. How do you handle that? I mean, it's, it, again, these are things that, that male sports people generally don't have, to, don't, don't have to consider. So I found in the book that it, it's such an easy read as well. It's so well written that it's not berating you with a manifesto or anything like that, but it's getting you to think about sport and about women in sport and about her life in sport in a slightly different way than what she did before. And you just read a line like that, about even about the bruises, and you just stop and go, yeah, that's that, you know, it just tweaks your mindset slightly, tweaks your way of thinking. It is, like Gavin said, it is very interesting to see these sort of meditative memoirs, if you like, coming forward now. So you have, we'll, we'll probably discuss a couple of more before we're done, but Emer's one is it's an example of... It's something you see in American sports writing a lot, where people from outside of the sports writing genre will write about sports because sports is considered to be a literary genre in America. It's not so much here. So we're seeing this evolution. Now, that might be something to do with, you know, the big books, autobiographies, failing publishers over the last couple of years, that they're kind of moving towards this sort of, as I said, this kind of contemplative memoir idea. But I do think that it's creating a very interesting genre of books. And it's like... The only thing you could ever that ever ever existed in Irish sports literature that I can recall of this type would have been Over the Bar by Brown Don O'Hare. Yeah. Which is like, one of the classics. It is. But why is it a classic? It's a classic because it's a guy from outside of the gene pool reflecting on how sport influenced his life. And you can draw slight parallels or there's there's a kind of a thread here that they're tugging on that but it's it's amazing it's taken nearly forty years for this genre to come to come in a more kind of there's more of them you know, yeah. three or four books now you could say you know? yeah and just to and this is a slight tangent but just to build on what you're saying there as to how the the genre is changing and the fact that we're getting different and more meditative and contemplative uh, sports books in Ireland particularly about the GA it's partly because. GA players have shut themselves off from the rest of the country. Like, and I, I, like Mick, you'll know this more than anyone. That just the, the totally diminished access, yep. and the fact that they, there's much less of an interest. It seems in Gaelic football and hurling in terms of selling their sport, and you know because hurlers, you know, like because they play in helmets. 99% of like senior inter-county hurlers could walk down Grafton Street and not be recognised by a single person. Yeah. And that then, that eventually has a knock-on effect in terms of, well, who's going to sell an autobiography when they grow up? Um, or when they get older, should I say? And then as a result, it's leaving a void and it's been filled by books like Emer's, books like Ty Coakley's last year, books like Kieran Murphy's this year as well. Well, I want to get to Kieran yeah. Murphy's because I really enjoyed, enjoyed This Is The Life. I thought it was terrific. Yeah, this one to me was the most direct connection to the O'Hare over the bar idea. Yeah. That he's taking his, again, his life in sport and paralleling it with his life in life <laughs> uh, and how the two of them, how the two of them come together. And a um, man who's still playing into his 40s. Well, this is it. And I mean, he, you know, it's kind of, again, I mean, the idea of the O'Hare book was that it was written to mark the centenary of the GAA and he delivered the book that, I don't think they expected the book that he delivered actually, this kind of memoir idea. Yeah. So if you look at it in those terms, what Kieran is doing, I think here, is he's delivering a picture of life in 21st century GAA. So you're talking about uh, the demands of playing GAA at a very high level. I mean, he played up to under 21 into the fringes of the Galway senior panel like 
then coming to Dublin City like so many people do from the West, getting swept up in the city life. Uh, I would describe, I would say, Kieran is a, I would say a modest hipster. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I mean that in the best way of the world. But what I mean is that he was exposed to a lifestyle or a, a, a way of living that he mightn't have gotten Milltown and Galway growing up as, as, a, as a GA guy. <laughs> and you know, there was that there was that tension as well. Do I want to go home every weekend to play? Or do I want to live the life of a 20-something in Dublin, a late 20-something, early 30-something? Then you have that kind of pull back then to, to Galway. But then again, as life goes on, he transfers to a city club. And again, there's that tension stroke guilt about, I, am I leaving behind my roots here and what impact is that having on me? And it, eventually, of course, he finds the same grow for the game in Dublin as he had because it's a fundamental thing. Yeah. It comes back and that, that, again, I go back to that word meditation. When he really boils it down, he realises that he loves it because, number one, he's quite good at it. Number two, people appreciate him doing it and he just loves kicking a ball. I also thought what came across was the love of his parents. Absolutely. I thought it was yeah. wonderful the yeah. way that he wrote about his parents and his father started getting involved in everything but also his mother is the sort of the support but still very, very important really? in her own right and I just thought that was lovely the way he wrote about them. It was but terrific and one just one other thing to say about these books, right? These books exist on a knife edge, right? Because if they're not well written they'll be terrible. Like, they'll be really bad. <laughs> Yeah. borderline embarrassing <laughs> you know what I mean? but they will because you're yeah. talking about very personal stuff and concepts that you have about things and they can be really you know open to criticism but they're so well written these two I like I, I it, that kind of challenge would terrify me to be honest oh, it's because it's you don't uh, I think the kind of elevator pitch for the book is that it's it's about the 99% of the GA it's about everyone outside the intercounty player but to do that and to do that well everyone has to open the book and recognise themselves in the writing yeah. to make that to exactly. make it relatable and that is like a writer's point of view, that would terrify the hell out of me. But obviously, well, well, let's Kieran's stay with other GA books as well. And um, I just want to go to Humphrey Callagher's. No, actually, I'll go to that in a second. Paul Rouse is broader than just the GA, Sport and Modern Life. As always, we think of Paul mm. for his GA involvement, but Paul, as a historian, is also an incredibly accessible writer. Incredible, incredibly accessible, and just an incredibly smart guy. Like yeah. you just, I love reading these kind of books, books of essays, really, where you can figure out like a, like a smart person's thought process. That sounds kind of basic, but I'm quite, I'm quite entranced by it and obviously very, very jealous of it. This kind of grew out of his columns of the Irish Examiner, um, and it's a collection of essays that I think he started around COVID time and put together and just some of them are great you know again it's very relatable when he's talking about you know going into school and supporting Man United and there's others supporting Liverpool and so forth and you know the in the 80s the absolute torture that the Man United fans suffered at the time which the that they're, they're currently <laughs> suffering again uh, <laughs> torture I'm a Leeds fan I understand what torture's about don't mind those anyway um, and, and, and then you also get that kind of the scholarly and the smart element of things as well yeah. where he's talking about nationalism and sport is very strong and obviously Mick you'll be, you'll be well steeped in this as well but he's talking about this like the nonsense stuff that persists and like oh Hill 16 was built out of the rubble of the GPO and stuff and it's just like, <laughs> yeah, like he's been doing very this elegant I mean, takedown of he's things. done a great job of skewering a lot of that stuff but also a little bit like what I was talking about about the children's book that making sport and sport history and concepts around sport more accessible and more it could get you it's another one that'll get you thinking right but yeah. there's a great Little story in it. I, I really love it. He's standing in the shoe shop and he sees a pair of football boots and he just picks them up. Now, this is only in the, in the recent past. And he picks them up and he shouldn't, he doesn't, he's no need to buy them like, but it's just the smell of the boot boots and the feel of them. It triggers something in him and suddenly he feels these boots were 
these boots were made for me to buy. Go, I'm going out and play again. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> and then someone from his, an old teammate walks in and they have a conversation, and I won't spoil the rest of it, but it's just this wonderful idea about how sights, smells, feelings can just trigger something, an old memory from an old time and bring you back. And it's that kind of book. It's just lovely. It's, he's talking about very big ideas, but in a very accessible and simple way, I would say. And it's a great talent. It's a huge talent. Yeah. Okay, I want to just, I want to pull out another book here, which is by Humphrey Kelleher. And this is a place to play, the people and stories behind 101 GA grounds. And this is an absolutely beautiful book with drone photographs of grounds from all over the country and then the extraordinary stories behind the people who constructed the grounds. Okay. This is a beauty. It's it's one coming in from left field. Now, this is a dark horse coming up on the rails, I think, because this is the type of book that, it's a, as, Matt, as you say, Matt, it's a beautiful picture book and you think, oh, it's a, it's a coffee table book, but yeah. it's a lot more than a coffee table book. Like, uh, as you said, like the depth of research and stuff like that. I noticed that Donald McAnallen's name is in there, the historian as well, so that's a big stamp for me as well in terms of just, you know, the amount of work that would have gone into that. But Humphrey has done a great job here. I mean, I know from talking to myself that he, he when, the, when the pictures weren't quite working out for him, he went off and got a drone and proceeded to drive to every single of every single ground of the 101 that's in the book and some of those some of those grounds he visited three and four times to get the right photograph but that's only one aspect yeah. as you say Matt when you go into the detail of the stories it really brings you to me it brings you to the core of what we like to think the GA is about it's this courage sort of an ambition to go out and try and find money where none exists and a field where, no, where none exists yeah. and put those two things together and create something because that's like we can talk all we want about players and teams and everything without the fields and without the grounds there is no GA yeah. so it's a great it does a great job in reclaiming those stories and that that's right, those origin stories of the GA it's like a grassroots book in a very literal sense very I'm also just imagining the paranoia of some intercounty managers at the idea of a journalist going out, standing outside, flying a drone up over the track. Jim McGuinness is building a wall to deal with that. <laughs> I think he'll have to build a dome, I think, to, <laughs> if he wants to stop the drones coming in over wherever he's gone. But actually, aren't there a few counties have domes now for indoor training well, as it happens? Well, Connacht is the one, but yeah. honest, of course, and there's always talk of building one in every province and all that kind of start, start to carry on. But no, I mean, Humphrey, some of Humphrey's stories going getting with the drone. I remember he told me when he went to Newcastle and County Down and uh, the drone was up over, up over the ground in Newcastle and he was trying to get a picture of the Mourne Mountains behind it and yeah. he said as, as it was hovering there a flock of seagulls came and just attacked the drone uh, and I kept attacking it until it came like a few feet over his head <laughs> so he had, to, he had to keep coming back until the, until the okay. seagulls Left field comment from Lister but not an Irish sports book but if you haven't read it yet The Boys in the Boat by Daniel uh, James Brown before the movie comes out classic. in January that is one of not just one of the great sports books it's one of the best books I've ever read It's a classic It's a magnificent yeah. piece of work I mean on every level. Have you read it, Kev? No. Is that, it da- is is, is that Donald Crowhurst? Or am I getting mixed up? No, men, Daniel James Jones. This is about yeah. the 1936 Berlin Olympics and right. the American rowing team and the backstory of the individuals in the Dust Bowl era coming through poverty to get involved in the team in college. It is just utterly inspiring. And then it goes into tangents such as describing the construction of the boat, which yeah. is just absolutely jaw-dropping stuff. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to make a worthy movie out of it. It's such a good book. And yeah. it was actually Paul O'Connell recommended it to me back in 2015, but I hadn't heard of it. Yeah. And he swears by it as well. It is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It's a magnificent book. And like, you know, for 
for, for me reading it, quite apart from it being absolutely brilliantly written and an amazing story, you're looking at the level of research and the amount oh. of time that he has immersed himself in the Dust Bowl era and in that in that era in the late 20s and the 30s and the stories. And, you know, I mean, these the majority of the of the guys in the boat are not from the moneyed classes. They come no. from incredibly poor backgrounds and have had to pull... I've I been mean, saying that they pulled themselves up from their bootstraps is an understatement. Like and then this also goes into the Nazi Germany of yeah. the time and the significance of the Berlin Olympics. Sorry, we're completely off tangent here. But <laughs> it actually goes to prove the point you're saying that the best sports books are not necessarily sport is an opening up to things about... They're uh, never about general. sport, Matt. They're never yeah. about sport. They're a, sport is always a hook to other themes and to uh, trying to understand something about life itself. That's what the best ones are about. We have other books for the best sports books of the year to discuss with Michael Foley and Gavin Cooney when we come back after the traffic with Matthew Joyce. So we're going to continue with the sports books of the year with Michael Foley and Gavin Cooney. And Michael, only last Wednesday, uh, Wednesday last week, Eamon Carr was in for the Culture Club and of course Eamon big into music from having been in horse slips and the rest of it but he's also been a great journalist and writer over the years and I know you're particularly taken with his book uh, Show Business with Blood which is about his great love of boxing yeah yeah, I mean, Eamon Carr is probably known to people as, like, you know, for horse slips and, 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 and he's, like, you know, basically been there at the foundation of Irish rock and roll, but he also has had a very long life as a boxing correspondent since the mid-90s. Uh, he's a great man. He's just a great man. He's uh, great fun to be with. He's tremendous. He's just tremendous. And, like, on the surface, this book, Show Business with Blood, it starts, he starts it in the mid-90s uh, with Collins Eubank down in Misery, which was his first sort of entry into into boxing writing. Even though, he, right, even though he grew up with oh, boxing, did, I mean, he, and that's a big part of it the book. Is, it is. I'll come to that in a second, but that just in terms of the, of the timeline, mid-90s, basically all the way up to the Regency Hotel shootings, right, in 2016. So he goes, and what you realise when you're reading it is, and I, I covered boxing through this era, kind of in, you know, along with him at, at different stages, the amount of Irish professional boxers that either were either won world titles or were within a punching distance yeah. of world titles. It was an extraordinary era. So, like, they're all, like, everybody is here now. Bernard Dunn, um, uh, uh, Michael Carruth, Willie Casey, people remember Willie, John Duddy, Frampton, they're all there. Um, Conor McGregor makes an appearance. Um, and it's, it's just, I mean, quite apart from being a very good sort of walk through that era, mm. um, as you mentioned, there's, there's this feeling about his relationship with boxing, that music, although music defined his, his life to, 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 to a large degree, or how, how we know him, boxing was always there in the background, always. And what was most poignant to me was it was something when he was very young that he spoke to his dad about a lot. They would, he learned to read by reading out boxing reports from the, from, the, from the papers at the time. And then his mother passed away young, when she was young and they kind of stopped talking about boxing, you know? Yeah. And to me, reading the book, I just... I just liked the idea that he's back telling his boxing stories again and maybe somewhere yeah. his dad can hear him telling his boxing stories because they are, they are engaging and enthralling and even in terms of the Regency stuff and the rise of MTK, it kind of creeps like a shadow across the book gradually. He doesn't labour it but you can see it coming like a, like a cloud yeah. and then it's there and you know, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a sad moment for Irish professional boxing then. Let's move on. Another one of your choices, Gavin, is Liam Brady's book, Born to be a Footballer. Liam, or Chippy, was in here only about a month or so ago talking about it. I'm from an era growing up, remember him playing his debut in 1974 in Dalymount Park, the Don Givens hat-trick against Russia. Playing through, I remember being in Lansdowne Road in 1989 when Jack Charlton committed the unforgivable sin of taking 
taking him off the pitch before half time, humiliating yeah. him just after a half an hour. What was the atmosphere like when he was taken off? I remember I was on the terraces and yeah. there was sort of a shock. And then, but a lot of people didn't realise the significance of it. I remember I was saying to people around me, "That's it. That's the last we're going to see of him playing in an Irish shirt." Carlton's whole thing that he told to Paul Rowan subsequently in that book, "The House That Jack Built," was that. The Irish, we had, we, they don't give up their heroes easily. Like we, we would basically humiliate him to kind of convince the country that he was no longer ready to play. But he was still brilliant. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. was the thing about him. Okay, he played the game at a different pace and it maybe a different way to what Jack Charlton wanted. But he still applied himself. I mean, the day he got sent off was also in Lansdowne Road in '87 when we beat Bulgaria two 0 and that was the result before Scotland won in Bulgaria to put us through to the European Championships. We won two 0 and Brady was brilliant that day. He was absolutely brilliant. Until at the end, he snapped. He was getting a bit of thing and he threw an elbow out yeah. and he hit. And Charlton came onto the pitch against all the rules, put an arm around him. Probably happy because he was going to be suspended. <laughs> <laughs> but he was... He, the yeah. book, what do you make of the book? Now, Charlton actually subsequently wrote a letter then to, to, to Brady years later, kind of uh, apologising and wishing him well. I love the book. I absolutely loved it. Because um, he, he had written a book when he was 24. Mm. And we, we know this because it's uh, the second chapter of his new book is about it. Because he landed in a, in a UK high court in a defamation act <laughs> uh, in which he won. Uh, so that would naturally scare you off writing books, I think. Um, uh, but he's, he's left it a long time. It's 50 years this year since he made his um, first team debut for Arsenal to, to revisit his career. And I remember when he stepped away from RTE, he said, I found it very sad, he said that he didn't, he was kind of falling out of love with the game. Yeah, um, to hear. But I do wonder if he fell back into love uh, with the game when he was writing the book because he, like, that's what comes across, just how much he loved being a footballer, how much he loved the game. There's not really a trace of bitterness in this book because there are some things that he went through with Charlton, with Juventus, that he probably should be bitter about. But what I liked about it, there's loads of little details in it that I absolutely loved. But one of the standout things is that, you know, the whole thing is that Brady is, is heralded for his professionalism when he was leaving Juventus. He was such an important player for them. But at the time, Serie A clubs were limited to having three, two, foreign, uh, two. two foreign-born players. And Platini was on his way. So And Boniak as well was coming in right. from Poland. And then right. Charlton was getting the heave-ho, but he, he uh, has to take a penalty to win Serie A title on the last day against uh, is it Catanzaro, I think is the team. Uh, and he scores it. And everyone says, oh, Brady, like what? Like that just goes to show his professionalism and Brady in the book is just like I'm insulted by that like what do you think I was going to do deliberately miss and, and cost us the league title so he was angry at the club but he obviously uh, he did his job there and uh, and you remain close to Trapattoni afterwards I mean he, even involvement with the Republic yeah. of Ireland of course he did, yeah. I think you know this is one of those there's not many autobiographies this year but this is one that I'm, I was just really happy to see that it was done because he is one like, we remember him I, I would have got the... I'm a child of the 80s, so yeah. I remember Brady. We know how good he was, but things happen and we forget. Yeah, he, would have, he would have been classed as a great player, but not, you know, it's important, I think, to get these stories down yeah. and to remember how good he was. Platini level. Okay, and I want to ask you about somebody else who's gone from RT, and I asked him about this when I interviewed him. It's like, does he, you know, how would he like to be remembered as the man who was an RT pundit for over 30 years or as a footballer? And this is Pat Spillane, and yeah. of course... I mean, what a lot of people don't realise is this angry Kerry man was actually one of the greatest footballers of all time. I remember interviewing him, I think it was 2005, and I asked, he was presenting a Sunday game at the time, and I remember saying the same thing to him. 
are you at all concerned that you're going to be remembered as the angry man on television and not like the winner of eight All-Ireland Mills, one of the greatest footballers of all yeah. time? And he didn't, he did, wasn't too bothered at the time, but I am, again, glad that he wrote this book. It's his third book, but this is the one that sort of, if you want to go back in t- years to come and find out why Pat Spillane was great, what made him a special footballer that he was and what he went through, this is it. Well, the excellent Michael Moynihan works with him on it as well. Yeah. That helps. And it, it works. There was a good combination. I mean, you have everything from his from his football career, of course. He had a most appalling knee injury to have to deal with in 1981 that really he's suffered with ever since. Mm. But I mean, the punishment, and he's spoken about it many times before, but the punishment he put himself through to come back as an even better player and win three All-Ireland medals afterwards, is it's unbelievable. Um, talks a lot about losing his father at a young age and the impact of that. I was down with him maybe two months ago or so, and he was saying, you know, even now he's still kind of grieving that loss. And I think that informs the book in a big way as well. And there's, it's, it's a good read, and I'm just glad that he did this book. Not so much, he didn't have to reclaim his reputation. He's a great footballer, but just for the generations to come to know how great this guy was. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Is there anything else to throw in? Uh, a so. bang on the year by Phil Quinlan, I think, in terms of biographies, is, is just worth mentioning. Uh, Phil Sorry, Quin- who's Phil Quinlan? Phil Quinlan was a he was in 1989. He was he was an amateur soccer player, a young lad who went up for a header, a, an innocuous header, and came down. And uh, a little while later, while sitting on the bench, fell into a coma and suffered life-altering injuries as a result of the clash. And this, the book is really the story of it's part travelogue, really, because he went all over the world. But it's kind of how he pieced his life back together. But what was most impressive to me in it was that he never ever fell out of love with sport. He never sort of um, had a sort of a, a grudge against football, soccer um, for, for what it he, may, he could have had for what it did to him but it's a very engaging read it's a, it's a very very good read um, for me there's a couple of GA books that I worth mentioning hero books always have a million books out at this time of the year so if you're looking for something region and a local you'll always find something but there was a, a one, of, one of the books I did was Richie Power Father and Son um, both like Kenny Hurlers by Dermot Keyes as well worth a look and the Cork Football Story by Dennis Hurley I get asked a lot about Cork football <laughs> and why aren't they better and you know I think this book tells you at least why they can be so good Thank you very much both of you for taking the time Michael Foley sports writer with the Ireland edition of the Sunday Times and author of The Children of Crow Park which is a great stocking filler for your children for this Christmas and Gavin Cooney journalist with the 42.ie thank you both very much for being with us The Last Word with Matt Cooper Today.